Well, good morning. It is great to be here with you. Um, all the way from West Africa, I bring you warm greetings uh, from the Presbyterian Church across West Africa who send their love and uh, also their thankfulness for your continued labors with them and support of the work that's happening in West Africa. Would you take your Bibles and turn with me, please, to Psalm 47, which is our text for the morning? Psalm 47. And as you do that, um, yes, just to follow up on what Pastor Mike said, I, I really can't believe that I'm back here. Uh, I think it was actually second and third grade when this was the North Branch of Wilmington Christian School. And um, I could tell you stories for the rest of the time that we're together this morning about how amazing it is that that boy who was running through the hallways of the building uh, back then is here with you this morning and uh, bringing you God's word. Uh, Psalm 47. This is God's word for God's people. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord the Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with the psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for just the great privilege and honor and joy of worship. We thank you now that we can open your word, and we pray, we ask for your help in understanding what you're saying to us this morning, applying it to our lives. We pray that Jesus Christ would be highly lifted up, that he'd be exalted this morning in our midst. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, what many returning missionaries are hesitant to tell you is that there are many mornings uh, where we wake up and we say, why are we here? And there are even worse days where we ask ourselves, how soon can we get a plane ticket and, and return home? Uh, I was a pastor here in this presbytery. I'm actually a son of this presbytery. And for the 18 years that I was down in Middletown, and we had missionaries coming in and out of the church. I heard hints of that along the way, but I'm here to tell you this morning that it is, it is true. It's true of me, it's true of our family. Take all the, the challenges of raising teenagers, take all the normal aspects of daily life, getting your car repaired, having something in the home fixed, dealing with medical needs that come up from time to time, and everything that you'll deal with this week and, and, and attach to that, what I call the third world factor. The fact that your electric's going to be cut at certain points during the week, your, your water's going to stop flowing for some of those days also, that there's going to be an unexpected dust storm that whips up off the Sahara and shuts you down for several hours or maybe days. And add to that the, the added difficulty of just the context that you're ministering to, which is a, a context that's a majority Muslim. 
96% Muslim. And all of the spiritual darkness that comes uh, with that kind of reality every day. And then add to that the human condition factor. The fact that I'm battling and wrestling my own sin every day. I'm facing my own weaknesses every day. And when you put all that together, it's not hard to imagine why there are very difficult days for those who, who live on the field. And it's for that reason that we need psalms like this. This, this psalm is a perspective psalm. Sometimes I like to refer to this psalm and a few others as um, cliff bar psalms. Now, some of you will get that reference right away, especially if you're an endurance athlete or or maybe you've been in a triathlon or something like that. You know these cliff bars. These are these high-energy bars that you can eat to replenish yourself, revitalize yourself, get the calories you need to finish the race or to replenish at the end of the race. Well, this is kind of like a cliff bar psalm, or if you will, it's kind of like an emergency IV supplying you with needed nutrients because you're weak. And Psalm 47 comes to us this morning. It comes to not only tired missionaries, but it comes to tired churches. It comes to tired missions committees. It comes to, to tired individuals. And so this morning, we want to look at this together. But as we do that, what I mean by this psalm is, is a perspective psalm, is that it's a perspective psalm because of the one that we meet in it. We meet the risen Jesus in Psalm 47. Remember, it was Jesus who said to his disciples in Luke 24, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. So he's speaking about the entire Old Testament. Every bit of it, he says, must be fulfilled. It's about me. And so this morning, if you will, we have the distinct advantage over Old Testament people who would have read this psalm, to read this through a different lens, and that is the lens of our risen Savior who fulfills it and who stands to meet us in it this morning. Now, as you know, there are psalms for all kinds of things. There are psalms for confessing sin. There are psalms for being thankful. There are psalms for uh, complaining. Those are important psalms for me sometimes. Uh, there are psalms, of course, for worship. Um, there are psalms for expressing your anger and disappointment and doubt. But this morning, Psalm 47 comes to us, in fact, as a psalm for those who are desperate to know that God is still on his throne. And I don't know how you've come into church this morning, but maybe you need to hear that this morning, that God is still on his throne. Now, scholars call this a war psalm or sometimes a, a victory psalm or a psalm of enthronement, we'll refer to it as a cliff bar psalm, which is sure to get about 0% traction in the academic world. But you'll never forget it, hopefully, for the rest of your life. Psalm 47, cliff bar psalm. Now notice that it says there at the beginning in the superscription that it's to the choir master or the director of music who was, these, these men were highly organized in David's day. And we also see there that it's a psalm of the sons of Korah, which is very interesting. And I won't say a lot about this, but we'll come back to it later. A psalm of the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah, in fact, were a priestly family with a long history of serving God 
in worship. We learn about them in Exodus chapter 6. But seven or so generations prior to this, something happened in the line of Korah that you may know about if you know your Old Testament history as you dig through it a bit. Numbers chapter 16, the sons of Korah led a rebellion against Moses and Aaron to try to overthrow Moses and Aaron. And we're told that the ground opened up, that it swallowed the descendants of Korah on that day. And it was a, it was a sign of God's judgment for sure. But not all the descendants of Korah died that day, obviously. And now all these generations later, God has preserved a remnant. He's raised up a remnant even in the guild of worship in the temple. And in 2 Chronicles 20, we read, In the days of Jehoshaphat, the sons of Korah, quote, stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a loud voice. Talk about a family legacy. I, don't, I wonder how they liked being referred to all these generations later as the sons of Korah. That would be like a New Testament stewardship committee being referred to as the sons of Ananias and Sapphira. Well, be that as it is, they, the name stuck with them and was probably a symbol of God's grace in their lives. And we'll come back to that in a moment because I think the sons of Korah may be uniquely qualified to speak to us about what this psalm does speak to us about. So let's look at this psalm under three headings. Let's look at it under the heading of the joy of the peoples, the worship of the peoples, and the unity of the peoples. So let's talk about the joy and the worship and the unity of the peoples. Notice verse 1 again. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. Notice how this psalm immediately reaches beyond Israel to include the peoples, we're told. Clap your hands, all peoples. And the peoples, again, are mentioned throughout, aren't they? In verse 3 and in verse 9. But who are these peoples? Well, you may know that the peoples referred to here are the individual ethnic groups that surrounded Israel. They were people of distinct language and distinct culture. In Old Testament terms, they were people who could trace their back, their, their history back to the splintering of humanity at the Tower of Babel. Individual ethnic groups, people who shared language and culture. These were the peoples, but notice also we have the nations mentioned in verses 3 and 8. He subdued peoples under us, verse 3 says, and nations under our feet. Who are the nations? Well, the nations are the political identities or the arrangements by political alliances of the peoples of the ancient world. So this psalm is talking about a joy that exceeds all other joys for the peoples of the world and the nations of the world. So if you will, a joy that exceeds a cultural identity. And the joy of a shared cultural identity is a very real joy. It's a good joy. The joy of having conversation with people who speak the same language that you do, trust me, is a great joy. But there's a joy that exceeds that. And there's a joy that exceeds or transcends our politics too. An enduring joy that started with Israel but would not be contained in Israel 
a joy with such power that it would unite people of all tribal, ethnic, and language backgrounds at a very high level. And we could use that joy this morning. As we look at our world today, fractured and splintered and at war with itself, we could use a joy so powerful that it can unite the various peoples of the world, even with all their cultural and language differences. A high-level joy that unites the world and also works at very low levels in your marriage this morning and in your relationships. Now, we need to drill down a bit on this joy. What kind of joy is this? Well, notice in this psalm that it's a joy characterized by two things. It's a joy of knowing the Lord, and it's a joy of participating in his victory. So if you will have this joy this morning pulsating through your veins and living in your soul, it will be because you have the joy of knowing the Lord, and you have the joy of participating in his victory. What is this joy of knowing the Lord? Well, it's not the same thing as knowing that God exists. Any good deist knows that God exists. It's not even the joy of knowing about the Lord. It's a joy of knowing the Lord. And how does the psalm tell us that? Well, verse 2 says, For the Lord, and notice in your Bibles and in most Bibles today, that the word Lord is capitalized, not just at the beginning, but all four letters are capitalized, signifying that there's something special, and you may know about it already, going on behind that name, Lord. In fact, what's being indicated for us is that we really don't know how to pronounce this word at all. It's the four-letter Hebrew word, the tetragrammaton. And ancient Hebrew didn't, it was a consonant-only language, and so we're not even sure exactly how to pronounce it, but we'll use this morning Yahweh. Yahweh. It's God's covenant name. It's the name that God revealed to Moses in Exodus at the burning bush when he said, tell them that I am sent you. It's the self-existent, eternally existent covenant God of Israel. And ancient Near Eastern scholars tell us that Israel was unique for this. They were unique for having a personal covenantal relationship with their God. If you scour the ancient documents today that do exist among the other nations that were there at this time, you won't find anything like a covenant arrangement between the other peoples and their gods. This was unique to Israel. He spoke to them. He made promises to them. He gave them laws to guide them. And most amazingly, he mapped out their future and gave them a, pur a purpose. You don't have any of that in the other ancient literature of the day. God initiating sovereignly a covenant with a people, a covenant founded not upon what they would do for him, but founded upon his grace. Do you know that God this morning? The joy we're speaking of and the joy the psalmist is speaking of under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit this morning is a joy founded in a personal knowing of Yahweh, of the Lord. And verse 2 also says, for the Lord the Most High, another important term for God, El Elyon, 
Most High. If Yahweh is a covenantal name for God, Most High is a comparative name for God. The other nations, as we read in our call to worship, had their gods, small g, which were not gods at all, but were lifeless idols, and unfortunately, they were also doorways into a demonic world in the worship of demons. But this psalm teaches us that Yahweh is most high. He's above all the other idols, lifeless idols. He's above all the spiritual powers of darkness in high places. His power extends over the spirit world of Satan and demons this morning. And I don't know if you and I in the Western world realize it enough, that is very good news. In West Africa, the moment a child is born, they are wrapped with amulets and charms. We call it grigri shells and string and rope and various things that have been blessed and where blood has been sprinkled by a marabou. And those things are tied around the waist of every child at birth and they remain uh, tied around the waist of every human being until the day they die in West Africa, those who live in this animistic culture. And why? To protect them from evil spirits. Now you might say that's just superstitious hogwash, which is what I've been tempted to say along the way too. And it is superstitious hogwash. (laughs) But it's more than that. It is an entrance into a very dark world. A world of satanic power. But Yahweh is most high. He's over all other gods. He's over all other power. And there's great joy in being liberated from the powers of darkness. And so the first thing that happens when someone becomes a believer in this culture... And and in fact, it's the thing that they do that signifies they really got it. They got the gospel. They believe Yahweh is most high, is they allow those amulets to be cut off and thrown in a fire. And when that happens, you're reasonably sure they got it. They've come under the power of the most high God, believing in his protection. But then notice it also says in verse 2, For the Lord the Most High is to be feared, the great King over all the earth. The Most High is to be feared. In fact, it's, in Hebrew it's a single word, awesome. The Lord Yahweh is Most High above all other gods. Awesome. And the word literally means he's terrible. <laughs> he's terrible. He's terrible in his strength and in his holiness and in his power over the other gods of the nations. And finally, verse 2 says, he's the great king over all the earth. So he's no tribal deity. But friends, this morning he deserves international acclaim. He's to be worshipped by all peoples. There's a joy in knowing the Lord. But secondly, it's a joy of participating in his victory. Look at verses 3 and 4. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage or our inheritance for us, the pride of Jacob whom he loves. And the pride of Jacob is a reference to Canaan, the promised land. God chose the promised land for his people. He went out and fought battles for his people Israel to give them a particular plot of land. But notice, God gave Israel victory over Egypt at the Exodus, one of the most powerful superpowers of the ancient world when he brought them 40 years later to the threshold of Canaan and over the Jordan 
and into a land as a people who had never known a weapon or had never known war. He gave them victory over the powerful Canaanite armies. Why did God do that? Well, verse 4 says, because he chose our heritage for us. The pride of Jacob. God had a, he was on a mission. His mission was to give the descendants of Abraham a particular land to turn them into a powerful nation, multiply them, and make them a blessing. This is the Abrahamic covenant to the whole world. To make them a blessing to all the families of the earth. This is covenant language that we're reading about. It takes us right back to Genesis chapter 12. But when I read this, and maybe when you read this, you might be asking, I understand why Israel would clap their hands in joy. They've got Yahweh behind them. But why would the nations, the other nations, those nations that are being conquered in the promised land, the Canaanite nations, why would they clap their hands in joy as those being conquered? Well, God's mission, starting with Israel, is to reverse the curse and bondage of sin and to liberate the peoples, not just Israel. God's promise to, to give Abraham land and make him a nation were actually on the way to making him somehow a blessing to all the peoples and all the nations of the world. It wasn't an end in and of itself. The end goal was never, hey, let's put Israel in Canaan and leave them there. Never. God's plan for redeeming all the peoples of the world started with redeeming Israel. They had the great privilege of being the first peoples who were redeemed and making them trophies of his grace for the rest of the world to see. Now, who better to be writing this psalm about the joy of the peoples than the sons of Korah seven generations later who themselves were trophies of God's grace rescued from the very pit of destruction. Israel was called to be a light to the nations. She failed in that mission. Canaan was to be a type of a greater eternal promised land. God is conquering the peoples of the Old Testament world militarily in the Old Testament to later conquer them by his grace. How did he do that? How did God conquer the peoples of the world by his grace? Well, he did it on a different battlefield. He did it in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, Yahweh, this personal covenant God, most high over all other gods, terrible in his sovereign power and strength, king over all the earth, did the most amazing thing, the most unimaginable thing, in fact. He took flesh. He came in the person of Jesus Christ. Yahweh was made center on the battlefield of humanity against sin and death, and his victory was the most unlikely victory that anyone can imagine because his victory was actually through a substitutionary death for you and me. He paid the price for our sins. And in John 8, Jesus told the Jewish people, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is saying, I'm Yahweh. I'm Yahweh who's come. 
And they picked up stones to kill him because they knew he was claiming to be Yahweh of Psalm 47. And when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus in the garden, he said to them, who do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they fell back by the power of his name. And friend, I can say the ultimate victory that he won for us was at the cross. This is where he defeated sin and death. And this is where the joy of the nations is to be found. This is where the joy of the nations was purchased at the cross. And so we can hear echoes of Jesus' great commission through this psalm, in fact, from Matthew 28. All authority because of what I've done for you on the cross in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, which is the Greek equivalent to the word peoples in the Old Testament. Make disciples of all peoples. Now, there are somewhere around 17,446, give or take a few hundred maybe, people groups in the world today. And what's surprising to me still in 2022 is that 7,400 of that 17,446 are still considered unreached people groups. Unreached people groups are people groups who know nothing of the joy we're talking about, nothing of the conquest of Jesus at Golgotha. They know nothing of this. They don't have many of them. The Bible in their own languages after all these years, there's fewer than 100 believers in these people groups that are unreached. That's somewhere around 3.23 billion people who don't know the joy of the victory that was won for them at the cross. That's the joy of the peoples. Do you know that joy this morning? Because you are the peoples too. Do you have this joy of knowing God personally through his son Jesus Christ who went to the cross and died for you so that your sins could be forgiven? The worship of the peoples. Secondly, this joy translates immediately cross-culturally with beauty and diversity in worship. Notice how it's expressed. Verse 1, clapping. Joy is expressed in worship around the world today. This morning as we sit here and worship together around the world today, even in some of those unreached people groups who are becoming reached, this joy of knowing Jesus is being expressed through worship, through clapping. Clap your hands and very interestingly, this word for clap is, there's two Hebrew words for clap. This one is strike your hands with force. Kind of like when your, your favorite team wins the big game and you're standing alongside the road as they pass by in a giant parade, which happened in, in my country in February when our team beat the Egyptian soccer team at the African World Cup, first time ever, millions of people flooded the streets, and they clapped, and they danced for days because their team had won the game. This is the clapping of victory. This isn't mere applause. This is clapping that your team has won, that Jesus has won the victory for us. Worship is rhythmic and percussive with the sound of victory. Verse 1 also says, shouts and cries of joy. Actually, probably better translated, shout to God with the voice of triumph. It's a hard word to translate, but the, word, the idea of triumph is in there again. Verse 5 says, 
trumpets. Look at verse 5. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Now, didn't see trumpets this morning here. Maybe you have them other Sundays. I don't know. But trumpets, remember, or the shofar, the ram's horn of David's day, was used to summons troops for battle, to, for battle, but also it was used to declare a victory, to announce a victorious king in your presence. So we have instrumentation in our worship. Verses 6 and 7 are probably the most important. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises for God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with the psalm. So there's no fewer than five references to what? To singing. Singing. Singing is very important to God. And the structure of the psalm itself, in fact, if you look at it very closely, tells us that all these other expressions of joy in worship fall short without singing. What's so special about singing over the trumpets, over the clapping, over everything else? Well, of course, it's the lyrics. Singing engages the heart. Deep inner affections. God wants to be remembered and acclaimed and celebrated and written about and cherished in a song. It's the same reason that many of you probably at one time wrote love songs to the woman that you love. You should still write love songs and poems because the heart sings through poetry. And of course, this psalm is speaking about singing and singing and singing, and the very psalm itself is a song. It's a lyric itself to remind us how important it is to, to, to praise God through, through remembrance of words and verse. The psalm, the word psalm in verse 7 is, is masculine, which literally is, it's a bit of a mystery, but it means praise God with understanding in your heart for what he's done for you. Now, as the joy of what Jesus did spreads to all peoples and the reality of the kingdom becomes more and more visible, this creates a rich diversity we're not exporting Christian joy wrapped in Western culture around the world. That would be tragic. That would defeat the purpose. And so I want you to go with me for just a couple minutes. <laughs> Wish I could put you on a plane and we could go there together. I want, you, I want to take you inside of a worship service in West Africa. What are the sights and sounds? What would you hear if you went there? Well, the first thing that you would notice immediately is that there's no air conditioning. You'd, re you'd realize that the moment you woke up and got your, you'd be sweating before you got to church. Not too different than today, actually. But once you got in here, it'd be even hotter. The room you'd be in would be about a fifth the size of this room, but with the same amount or more people. And temperatures would soar to 110 People sitting on very simple chairs or benches gathered together. Nobody minds. They've been waiting all week for this. This is the highlight of their week. This is their family. Their biological families have rejected them. But for putting their trust in Jesus, they've been banned from their families. They've lost their jobs. They've been eking out an existence all week with the great expectation of being together with their spiritual family and allowing the joy that they found in Jesus overflow from their lives. Second thing you'd notice is very flexible and fluid time restraints. 
which we don't have here this morning, I'm, I've been told. <laughs> so the service, is, the service might last an hour and a half or two hours, but it might go three and a half. The preacher will definitely preach for an hour. Again, nobody's in a hurry. They've, they've been hungry to hear God's word. Many of them didn't grow up going to vacation Bible school or Sunday school, so every morsel of truth from God's word that they can get, they sit there and they want to hear. Clapping. Lots of clapping. Ironically so, clapping dominates the worship service of West Africa. It was so hard for my family to get used to this because clapping is very technical in West Africa. It's not just clap however you want. No, there is strategic clapping. There is highly fine-tuned clapping. There are strategic loud clappers throughout the congregation, alternative rhythms and everything. My kids love it now, but early on it was just hard to follow. Every song is carried along by clapping. Singing. There's at least an hour, 15, 20, 30 minutes of singing. At least one half hour, my family jokes about this, but it's true. At least one half hour is one song. One continuous song that, can, that just goes on and on. Maybe sung off key, at least to your ears, but not to theirs. Drumming. There will be four or five young men or young women behind us who are drumming away with great skill. We don't have trumpets where I live, but when I was in Sierra Leone in May, they did have trumpets. <laughs> and it was awesome. And then characteristic of these worship services are times and seasons of prayer where the congregation stands up, they don't close their eyes, they open their eyes, look to the heavens, and they pray out loud at the same time in their own heart language, and there are four or five in our little congregation. And it was so hard at first because I couldn't pay attention to my own prayers, and I thought it was very unorderly, and I, would, I wanted to even, in my heart, if I'm honest, I wanted to change that. How arrogant. Now, these years later, it's the highlight of the service for me, too. Nobody's front and center. Everybody crying out to the Lord for his help for the week to come, confessing their sins, claiming the victory of Jesus at the cross. Now, why does this matter? John Piper said this. You may have read this, right, in his classic book, missions book, Let the Nations Be Glad. It's a summary of the book, really. The fame and greatness and worth of an object of beauty increases in proportion to the diversity of those who recognize its beauty. The strength and wisdom and love of a leader is magnified in proportion to the diversity of the people he can inspire to follow him in joy. That's the worship of the people's which is the overflow of the joy of the peoples. And all of this is for the unity of the peoples. Thirdly, there's a beautiful theological truth that's tucked away in verse 9, and you can miss it if you're not careful. Look at verse 9. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham, for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Now, look again at that verse, because the word as is not really there. It's not really there. It's really the princes of the peoples gather 
the people of the God of Abraham. And translators have debated what goes there between gather and the people. I want to read a comma there, right? As the princes of the peoples gather, comma, the people of the God of Abraham. Now you might be thinking, what's the big deal? You came 4,000 miles to tell us this. This is revolutionary. This is revolutionary. (laughs) Jewish and Gentile believers in Jesus will... At the end of the age, the sons of Korah are looking down the corridor of time sort of prophetically, and they're seeing the eschatological end of all of this, and the end tells them that there will be one people of the God of Abraham. It's not the princes of the peoples gather with the people of the God of Abraham as though there were two peoples at the end of history the peoples who are the Gentiles and Israel over here. No, there's one united humanity in Christ. Paul refers to it as a mystery in Ephesians 3 when he says, this mystery is that the Gentiles or the peoples are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the true gospel. The grand mystery of redemption is that God is redeeming for himself a people, one people. He started with the people of Israel, but his plan was always to make one body from the many. And one of the greatest threats to early Christianity, in fact, was the possibility that there would be Jewish and Gentile churches across the street from each other. That would have been tragic. That's not what God intended, to have Jewish church on here and Gentile church down there. The curse of Babel is broken and the sons of Korah could see what was coming in this glorious uniting of all the peoples with Israel into one people. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. And God is doing that. That's why if you got on a plane and did come visit us, and I hope you will, you'd come to church, that small sweaty room that I spoke of, and you would meet people, and in an instant you would sense that there's something that binds you together. There's something that unites you that goes far above and beyond all the obvious differences. You'd have family on the other side of the world. In fact, you have family all over the world. And someday I believe you'll be able to speak to them and understand them You'll be shoulder to shoulder with them praising the Lord. So let me close with three questions real quick for you to ponder, help you apply all of this as you leave today. Number one, do you know this joy that exceeds all other joys? Do you know it personally? Do you know the victory of Jesus at the cross and how that translates very specifically to you and your alienation from God and your need for reconciliation? Do you have this joy? Don't leave today without it. Accept Christ. Accept his work for you. Participate in the victory. Second, how is your joy in Jesus overflowing the banks of your life to reach the world? Is the mission of your life aligned with God's mission for the world? And thirdly, does your life and worship reflect the reality that your king is reigning today? Or have you settled into a passionless, subpar worship that is not the kind of worship that flows from joyful victory.
Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for the privilege of hearing you speak to us this morning. Be with us now as we come to this table and participate in that unity that we spoke of this morning. Amen.